turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 4. It'll be around page 400 if you're looking at the Bible in front of you. Uh, it's red. Uh, so if you could turn there, Ephesians chapter 4. Today we'll be in verses 7 to 23, just kind of the second half of the chapter we'll wrap up today. As we just prayed, the country of Mozambique is in the southeast part of, uh, south, um, of Africa. It's to the northeast of South Africa, if that's any kind of bearings for you. South Africa is at the very bottom of Africa. Uh, in Mozambique, just to fill you in on some details of the country we prayed for, there is an Islamic insurgent group who is terrorizing the northern region of that country. This group has targeted fellow Muslims, but they have also targeted Christians. They've displaced 800,000 people from their homes. That's like twice the size of Cleveland. So when these terrorists come to a town in Mozambique, they may give their fellow Muslims an opportunity uh, to flee their lives. They may give fellow Muslims an opportunity to cite some verses from the Quran and then have their lives spared. But often Christians face a worse fate. This Islamic insurgent group beheads Christians. They crucify Christians. And they will even kill the family members of Christians right in front of them. And what's worse, what's shocking, is that this group will force some Christians to drink the blood and eat the flesh of their family members. They do this as an insult and mockery to their faith. Christians are not wiped out in Mozambique, but those who have remained have faced and endured a tremendous amount and they continue to face this barbaric threat and so the question naturally becomes how do they keep going how in the world do they keep going this is what one pastor said he said what can separate me from god death no the war no of course i will continue to serve my god because he gave himself I also will give myself. The people out there, I need to give them my hope, my counsel, and my testimony. I've lost everything like them. When I fled, I left my food. My house was burnt down. But Jesus was not cut out of me. He was not burned out of me. So I continue to encourage and to serve. Oh, praise God for a witness like that. If you know the Bible, if you know the history of God's people, you know that this is not a new story. Today in Nehemiah 4, we'll see how the enemies of God's people begin to do more than just jeer and make fun of them. They actually begin to plot to destroy them, to do physical harm to them. But today in Nehemiah, we'll see how God does what he has always done and what he continues to do. God thwarts the schemes of his enemies. God defends his people. And God shows that he still reigns. So may our brothers and sisters in Mozambique, as well as the Israelites in Nehemiah's day, encourage us to look to God and stand strong in him for the battles that we face. You'll follow along as I read Nehemiah 4, verses 7 to 23. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. 
And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fights for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built The man sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held out the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. The main idea or takeaway from this passage is very simple. Our best defense is to run to our defender. Our best defense is to run to our defender. We'll see how the Israelites did just that when opposition breathed down their necks. They ran to their defender. And not only did God fight for them, God also gave to them what they needed to stand firm. So we have three sections for our time today. Why the Israelites' situation was bad, what they could have done, and what they did instead. As we go through this passage, may we leave here running to our defender and find strength, hope, courage, and wisdom to stand. First section, why their situation was bad. I don't know about you, but sometimes relentless optimists and fixers can be annoying. One example is Chris Traeger from the show Parks and Recreation. One of Chris's favorite mottos is, everything is amazing and today is perfect. This gets Chris into trouble when he gets a girlfriend, Ann Perkins. When he fumbles his attempts to console Ann, his friends intervene. One of them says, hey man, if your girlfriend needs a Tylenol, she can get that herself. What she needs from you is just to look in her eyes, nod your head, and say those two magic words. That sucks. (laughs) Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, it didn't pull a Chris Traeger and say, everything is awesome. Today is perfect. No. 
they knew their situation was bad. We see this at least in two lights. Their situation was bad because they were opposed. They were opposed. Verse 7 shows us that Sambalot had acquired allies in his opposition to Jerusalem. Perhaps these different groups, maybe they skirmished and disagreed on other fronts. But when it came to those who sought the welfare of Jerusalem, these groups were united and in agreement. They agreed that the good of Jerusalem would undermine their own power and agenda and kingdoms. It's really the heart of any opposition, isn't it? It would undermine our own power. And the same worked for Jesus, didn't it? Rival groups such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees joined forces because Christ exposed them. They joined forces because Christ undermined their position and their power. And today still we wonder why people oppose the gospel. The gospel is offensive to the world, as 1 Corinthians says. Because the gospel threatens our personal autonomy and our personal power. Friends, to put it plainly, if Jesus died and rose again, then we are no longer in charge of ourselves. And we don't like that. So we see here in verse 7 and 8, their opposition grew. The opposition grew to the point that Jerusalem had adversaries now to the east, to the west, and to the south. They were basically surrounded. Verse 7 tells us what further incensed this group's anger also. You could spot it. This time, the group wasn't angry just because that, uh, the people of Jerusalem started to build the wall, as in verse 1. They were angry because the people of Jerusalem were making progress on the wall. And friends, don't be surprised if you see that same dynamic play out in your life. That people might be okay when you start to follow Jesus, that initial decision. But people might start to get uneasy in your life when you start to make progress in your faith. Maybe when we spend more time with other Christians. Maybe when we begin to talk more about spiritual matters. Maybe when we just say Jesus more in our conversations. Maybe when we stop doing the things we used to do with other people. We start to make progress. Then the people in our lives may begin to take notice. And that's when we might receive pressure to keep our faith private. Oh, it might be good for you. Why don't you keep it to yourself? We might receive pressure. You know, I don't want you to get too serious about your faith. I don't want you to become one of those weirdos or fanatics. Well, friends, what we say here is don't let the cares of the world or the opinions of other people keep you from making progress in your faith. Verses 8 and 11 tell us that Jerusalem's opposition, it was more than just increased social pressure, which is the kind of pressure most of us face Verses 8 and 11 tell us that this opposition planned to exert physical pressure on Jerusalem. You know, they weren't interested in filing a motion to the emperor. They weren't interested in attempting to bring in OSHA and halt the construction for not being up to code. No, this group figured that the most direct, the most expedient way to stop the work was to stop the workers. Very short most direct way to stop the work was to kill the workers. And so they schemed. 
And they thought the secrecy of their schemes would keep them hidden and give them success. And they would have to keep it a secret because remember, the very king of Persia himself sanctioned and approved the rebuilding of the wall. What they were doing was against the official decree of the king. And even that did not stop them from opposing the work. So this is their situation. It was bad. There's no denying it. They were opposed. Their situation was bad because they were discouraged. And really, when you look at verse 10, the opposition didn't discourage them so much. It was just that they were flat out tired. I mean, another way to put verse 10 is that they were about to collapse under the weight of this work. They had no heavy machinery. They had no professional workers. They had no reserves to call in for help. This was two miles of wall to rebuild, and they were doing it all by themselves and by hand. You know, I think here that they were discouraged at the work, I I think is a good reminder. It's a good reminder that the Bible leaves space for this. The Bible leaves space for us to feel discouraged. The Bible acknowledges the reality that we can be tired and weary. Even Jesus was tired and weary. And serving the Lord is difficult work. We do so in the face of trials. We do so in the face of opposition. We aim to follow God's call for us to be holy as he is holy. And that call often feels too much for us, like a weight we collapse under. So I wonder, friends, maybe do a little bit of an experiment. A show of hands. Is anyone here tired? Oh, yeah, the majority. Is anyone here discouraged in some way? We look here to the example of Scripture, and we look around you in this room, that you are not alone in that feeling. One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite promises to people who are tired and discouraged is Galatians 6, verse 9. It says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We're going to see how the Israelites kept going. And soon we'll see how they responded to their situation. But I didn't want to skip over the badness of their situation, though. We say this often. We won't treasure the good news if we don't feel the weight of the bad news. And so, section two, what they could have done. You know, there are right and wrong ways to respond to a bad situation. The Bible's filled with both examples Now, this story happens to be an example of a good way to respond to a bad situation. And verse 9 kind of sums up their response in total. It says, we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. They prayed and they took action. Now, before we dive into that good response, we can indulge our imagination just for a few moments. Let's entertain three alternative timelines when the Israelites could have responded to their situation much, much differently than they did. Alternative timeline number one. Imagine if the Israelites had just prayed. Imagine if they had just prayed. Now, let me be clear. We never want to make light of prayer. Sometimes praying is all that we can do. Prayer is essential. Prayer is powerful Not because prayer changes things, but prayer puts us in touch with the God who changes things. 
But, but, God forbid that we pray just for show. God forbid that we pray with no intention to follow through with obedience. God forbid that we use prayer as a device to skirt our responsibility to take action. That's what the Pharisees did, isn't it? Jesus says about them in Matthew 6, Matthew 5 through 7, really. He says, the Pharisees love for others to see them pray. The Pharisees love to be noticed for their prayers. They enjoy the appearance of godliness, but they don't actually follow through on being godly. They ignore the needs that are right in front of them that they can meet. So friends, God forbid that we are all talk and no action. God forbid that we are praying people and are not holy and merciful people. Now imagine, alternative timeline number two. Imagine if the Israelites just plowed ahead. Imagine if the Israelites just plowed ahead. You know, Nehemiah seems like a go-getter of sorts. Seems like a real workhorse, a spark plug. You fill in your favorite cliche. He could have rallied the workers and said, you know, listen, guys, listen. I know it's been really hard, but we don't have time to stop and talk about things. We just got to keep working. Or maybe Nehemiah just gets frustrated to the point and says, gathers everybody up and says, guys, enough is enough. It's time for us to take arms and attack could have just plowed ahead. Instead, it appears that the Israelites actually stopped working, at least for a bit. They stopped working and started praying. I don't know about you, when you're stressed or when you're really busy, have you ever said, you know, I just, I just need to keep me occupied. I need something to keep me occupied, take my mind off of things. It's a reasonable way to cope with stress, but sometimes you know, maybe putting your head down and just working is appropriate. But other times, we make work our refuge instead of God our refuge. We take our frantic, anxious hearts and we run to distraction instead of running to the Lord. When we don't stop to pray, we tell God, basically, I can handle this on my own. If the Israelites just plowed ahead and kept work and never talked to God about this, they would have communicated to God, you know what, Lord? We don't need a strength or a wisdom outside of our own. We'll just keep going. You know, this observation isn't original to me, but have you considered that the reason you don't pray isn't what you think it is? You don't pray because you're too busy. We often don't pray because we're too prideful. If you truly believe that God doesn't need you to uphold the world at every single moment, then you would pause to pray. If you truly believe that you cannot handle things on your own, then you would not just plow ahead and keep working. You would pause to pray. Friends, prayerlessness communicates that we can get along just fine without God. Prayerlessness is prideful. Now, alternative timeline number three, what the Israelites could have done in response to their bad situation. Imagine if the Israelites had just given up. They've starred in that movie before, haven't they? Plenty of summer blockbusters about the Israelites giving up. 
They've looked at their enemies in opposition before and they have panicked. When they are on the brink of the promised land in Numbers 13, at the sight of their giant enemies, what did they do? They gave up. The Israelites have looked at their enemies before and they have felt sorry for themselves and they have given up. You remember the time when God showed up 450 prophets of Baal through just one prophet of his own, Elijah. But Elijah's victory was short-lived. The wicked queen Jezebel continued to pursue Elijah and it sank Elijah into self-pity, ready to give up. He's telling God, God, I, I don't know if you know, but I'm the only guy you got left. God says, no, Elijah. I have 7,000 people left who have not bowed the knee to Baal and are still faithful to me. Imagine if the Israelites just gave up. Now, unless we elevate ourselves above them, we got to say we've started that movie before too. We've looked at our enemies and we've panicked. We've looked at our opposition and we felt sorry for ourselves. I think a lot of us indulge in what I call chicken little Christianity. What was Chicken Little famous for saying for? The sky is falling. Every day it seems like Christians are saying, somebody's saying, the sky is falling. It's never been this bad. Man, I don't know if that's accurate in history, but okay. I'm not saying it's not bad, but we just, when we focus squarely on pointing out the shortcomings of the world, we risk feeling too superior to the world to have a heart for the world to know Christ. We say the sky is falling all the time. I'm just going to give up. That, that's, that's what it leads to. Now we say before that the Bible leaves space to feel discouraged, to feel tired, to feel weary. That's real and legitimate. But we've got to be careful that we don't get trapped in self-pity either. To feel sorry for ourselves because that leads just to giving up. We can focus on how difficult the task is and forget the hope that we have. Forget that things might not be the way that they seem. Kind of like Elijah. So this is how the Israelites could have responded. And friends, if your story includes the hypocrisy of just praying, if your story includes the pride of just keeping working, if your story includes the unbelief of giving up, if that's in your story, well, join the club. I think that's everybody here. Your story, though, has a chance to be rewritten with another alternative timeline. Jesus' perfect story can fill your broken story. Jesus' faithfulness can stand in the place of your faithlessness. Jesus was never hypocritical. He is the one who prayed, Father, your will be done, and then went to the cross. Jesus is the one who always trusted in the Father's will. And Jesus' story can be your story. Not just so that Jesus stands in your place, but so that Jesus causes you to live like he did. And we can, we can catch reflections of Christ in the Israelites' response to their bad situation. So how did they actually respond? We already saw a sneak preview of what they did in verse 9. We said they prayed and they acted. So let's go to the passage. We'll notice aspects of this reaction. They prayed and they acted. Well, first they prayed. 
This passage shows us at least three aspects of their prayer. As they prayed, first they showed their habits. They showed their habits. We say prayer is the first action they took. When bad came, they didn't panic first. They didn't pity themselves first. They didn't even plan and work first. What did they do first? They prayed. They prayed first. Now, building a reflex like this doesn't just happen. It's not like the doctor hitting your knee with the hammer thingy and your leg flying up. It's not built in. We don't naturally operate this way. It takes forming a habit. That's how it worked for Nehemiah, actually, if you've paid close attention to this book so far. Back in chapter 2, Nehemiah talked to the king. It was a really intimidating situation. Nehemiah could have died. It was a tough spot. And so what did Nehemiah do? Before he ever talked to the king, he prayed. And then he spoke. The first thing he did was pray. Earlier in chapter 4, the Israelites heard the jaunts and jeers of their opponents. And what's the first thing that Nehemiah did? He prayed. And then, in verse 6, he went to work. This was a reflex for him. This is just something that he did. It showed his habits. He prayed first. Friends, we want to develop the same reflex that when bad things come, we go first to God. And if we want to develop this reflex, then we're going to have to do this repeatedly. We're going to have to develop muscle memory. And that means forming a good habit. You might remember Daniel chapter 6, you know, Daniel in the lion's den. That's how Daniel got thrown into the lion's den in the first place. It's how he was caught. The king's henchmen knew that they could catch Daniel praying at a certain time. Because you know why? It was his habit to pray every day at that time. He developed a good habit. But friends, you know as well as I do, there aren't just things as good habits, are there? There are things as bad habits also. Even the Bible acknowledges that. Consider Hebrews 10 verse 25. It says, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Friends, what habits have you developed? What habits will shape your heart to draw near to the Lord instead of running away from him? Israelites, first thing they did was they prayed. And as they prayed, the second aspect of it, it shows, as they prayed, they stilled their fear. They stilled their fear. Verse 14, Nehemiah said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In verse 14, Nehemiah is pulling sort of a role reversal. The reversal sort of veiled in the word awesome because the word awesome, like we often most associated that word with surfers, awesome. But they say really what it means is awe-striking or fear-striking. So they say their enemies are great and awe or fear-striking. But when Nehemiah is trying to get them to see who is greater or more awe-striking than God. Isaiah 51, verses 12 to 13. God says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Quite simply, friends, Nehemiah wants the people of Jerusalem to focus on God and not on their enemies. 
He wants them to focus on who is for them, not on who is against them. And we need people like Nehemiah in our lives because we don't do this. We need people and built-in reminders in our lives. It's kind of like Sunday mornings to tell us who God is and what God has done. To tell us, remember the Lord because we forget the Lord. I shared this during Sunday school last week, but a member of Martin Luther's church once asked him why he preaches the gospel to them every week. Luther's like, you want to know why? Because you forget the gospel every week. We have to remember and still our fears. In response to their bad situation, they prayed. As they prayed, they they showed their habits, they stilled their fears, and they displayed their trust in God. They displayed their trust in God. If you look at verses 19 to 20, Nehemiah makes battle plans. He says, when the trumpet or the shofar sounded, people should come together. But what was the true source of Nehemiah's confidence? It wasn't perfect battle plans. It wasn't contingency plans. It wasn't their advanced weaponry. Nehemiah planned, but his confidence was in the Lord. Our God will fight for us. And notice how we've just led up to this point. How the other aspects of uh, of our prayer have brought them here to confidence. If you make praying first a habit, if you remember the Lord regularly, if you do these things, then it will lead to a life of confidence. Verse 15, the Lord had already validated their confidence in him. He thwarted the plans of their enemies. The Jews living around Jerusalem learned about the schemes of their enemies. They told the builders about these schemes so that they could prepare. And they told them over and over again. Perhaps they were less confident than the builders were. Our God will fight for us. We say that God has validated our confidence in him in an even greater way. So that we can say, even with more confidence than the Israelites did, our God will fight for us. And where has he validated that confidence? At the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Jesus, by his death in our place, has satisfied the wrath of God against us for our sin, has defeated the works of the devil, has overcome the world, has broken the chains of sin and death. Now we can say... Our God will fight for us because our God has fought for us in Christ. So like we already said, the Israelites responded to their bad situation in a good way. They prayed. The second big part is they took action. They took action. Just real quick as we close, let's notice a few aspects of their action. Aspect number one, they acted with responsibility. So we say, yeah, they went to God first. They knew a call to action did not equal a call to trust themselves. But even though they acted after they prayed, they still acted. They took responsibility for defending themselves. They understood that a key way God would protect them is through their own efforts. Let's come, that, let's come to us with that. Have we taken responsibility for what God has called us to do? Have we taken responsibility for our discipleship to Jesus? Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That sounds like something we actively do. That we have to take responsibility to do. 
And yes, we say God has promised to grow us and to sanctify us. We cannot grow unless God works in us. But one way God promised to do this is through our action, through what we do. So are we giving ourselves to the actions through which we can grow? The means of grace, as they have been called. Taking in the word, spending time in prayer, in fellowship. We say even more so, if these actions are like exercise machines at the gym, are you just spending two minutes on it, or are you actually working up a sweat? So that you exercise and grow. Friends, God has given us armor. The spirit is in us. His sword is ours for the use. It's time to step into battle. It's time to check in the game. To fight against sin, to stand firm in the face of the world and the devil. We say that God does not want any, any of his people on the sideline. Even Nehemiah, the leader himself in verse 23, is actively in the fight, ready. Aspects of their action. They acted. Aspect number two, they acted thoughtfully. They acted thoughtfully. We read throughout this passage, there's just a creativity. There's a thoroughness of Nehemiah's plans and defenses. You take a look at verse 13, we see Nehemiah station people at the most strategic and vulnerable parts of the wall. Verse 13, he surrounded people with those who they would have a natural kinship with so that they would fight harder. Verse 16, he split the workers in half so that they would have people devoted to protecting others at all times. Verse 22, he put people on night shifts so that the enemy would not undo the day's work. There's a creativity, there's a thoughtfulness here. And we can imagine Nehemiah just asking, all of them asking, where do we need defenses and how can we meet them? Where where are we weak and vulnerable and how do we meet them? That takes thoughtfulness, thoroughness. Sometimes it takes creativity and boldness. And so for us, where are you exposed to sin? Where are you vulnerable to the world's influence? How can you prevent Monday through Saturday from undoing the progress you make on Sunday? Aspect number three of their action, just a couple more. They acted together. They acted together. This is a big theme in Nehemiah. We see verse 14, Nehemiah rallies them to remember the Lord and to remember their brothers and sisters. They would come and stand together later on at the sound of the trumpet. They defended each other day and night. They acted together. Made me think of one excerpt from a book called Masters of the Air, America's Bomber Boys Who Fought the Air War Against Nazi Germany. Fortress gunner Jack Novi recalled, I can't explain why we bomber crews, without any gung-ho attitude at all, would put our lives on the line, mission after mission, against the terrible odds of those days. Even when my fears were about to overwhelm me, even when I was physically sick, I kept flying my missions because I didn't want to let my crewmates down. I would have rather been dead. Friends, Christianity is not everybody for themselves. Christianity is everybody following Jesus together. Aspect number four, last one, they acted with vigilance. They acted with vigilance. I know if anybody knows the quarterback, Tom Brady, we familiar with this guy? Yeah. Tom Brady, it is so frustrating that he is still good. He's 44 years old. We ask, when will he go away? 
And Tom Brady's not even that great of an athlete. Doesn't have that great of an arm. He doesn't have the best arm. You know what makes Tom Brady good? There are many things, but one particular thing. Tom Brady gets rid of the ball. He's vigilant. He's got several 350-pound men ready to crush him. So he gets rid of the ball quickly. He's prepared. He knows the defense. He knows what receiver to target, and he gets it done. Tom Brady is vigilant. And this section here hammers home vigilance over and over again. See that the Israelites were always prepared, always ready, sword by their side, taking shifts, always on the lookout. And just to clarify, it's not that the Israelites were paranoid. It's that they were simply awake to the threat. They were ready. The Bible tells us to be ready. Be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. To be ready for Christ to return. To be ready to do good. To be ready to stand against temptation. To clarify, it's not that the builders stopped working. No, they started working with one hand practically. They worked in a new way. It's not that we stop either. But we work in a new way. We work with an active discernment and awareness that we live in a world filled with temptation and opposition. And so here, friends, in response to a bad situation, the Israelites made a good response with prayer and action. We see just how robust that it was. And if we want to grow, it will take these responses also. It will take prayer and action. If we want to stand against what the world would, would keep us from, it will take prayer and action. It will take to come to Jesus, to trust his all-sufficient sacrifice for you on the cross, to take shelter in his strength and his care, to hold on to his rule and his reign, to spend time with him, and there find the strength, courage, wisdom, and hope to stand. Lord Jesus, we need you. We want to know you more. We want to know the God who reigns, whose will will always be done. And resting in you, we want to stand confident in the world you've placed us in and continue to walk and grow in you. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray.